And if you look at the Northeast corridor currently, only about 7% of the current rail could support 150 mile. So you would have to redo the entire infrastructure. We've got nine passenger railroads and four freight railroads, all utilizing the same. So it's it's time for really a different vision for the Northeast quarter, and that's where we come in. Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm Paul Comfort. Great to be with you on this edition of Transit Unplugged in Depth. Today, we talk to Wayne Rogers, who is chairman and CEO of the Baltimore-Washington Rapid Rail LLC and Northeast Maglev LLC, about the Maglev project being studied to eventually be built between Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, and then they're hoping eventually all the way up to New York and maybe even to Boston. This would be a 311 mile per hour superconducting Maglev train, and it's been in progress for the better part of a decade. We talked to Wayne about the current progress and their connection with the Japan Central Railroad, where they already run a very similar type of service, you know, focused on frequency, safety, reliability, 33 years with no fare increase there in Japan at their service. They're using the same technology, the superconducting Maglev that he tells us all about their goals, what they're doing, where the project is now, how it differs from the California High Speed Rail Project or Brightline, all of that. This is an amazing interview you're going to really enjoy today on Transit Unplugged. Excited to have with us on the line Wayne Rogers, Chairman and CEO of the Baltimore Washington Rapid Rail LLC and the Northeast Maglev LLC, calling in today from Annapolis, Maryland. Wayne, thanks so much for being with us today on the podcast. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Paul. Yeah, it's funny. Wayne and I were talking offline in the green room how we both kind of have worked in the same circles, but never actually personally met. So it's great to meet you finally and the great work you've been doing there for Maglev trains here in the United States. So I guess let's start off with what is Maglev? Who is your company? Uh, You know, just kind of give us some context for what's happening in Maglev here in the United States. Well, first, Paul, you know, being on the Northeast, the Northeast quarter is our most congested quarter in the United States. If you look at the Northeast quarter today, it's 51 million people, 17% of the U.S. population. And let's fast forward to say 2040 or so, we're gonna add another 12 million people into this quarter. So the quarter is big and important. It it represents almost 20% of US GDP. So we have a huge economic thing. We have major cities that are very close to each other going up and down the quarter. So it's a tremendous important region for the United States. Second part of that though, is its infrastructure is totally broken. If we look at highways, it's 12% of all the highway miles in the entire United States in just the Northeast quarter. 52% of the worst highway bottlenecks in the United States are right here in the Northeast. And if we look ahead, let's jump ahead to 2040 again, and we're going to see a 22% increase in auto travel. And what does that mean just about automobiles? That means tremendous congestion. That means tremendous cost, tremendous loss of time for people. We look at Washington, D.C. in 1982, the average delay of someone commuting or driving their car here was maybe 30 minutes. We fast forward to 2019, the latest data, it's now 102 minutes. So you spend an extra 102 minutes in your car just stuck in traffic jams going forward. So that's a huge problem and not saying what's going to happen when we add another 12 million people to it. Now let's talk about airports, air travel in this quarter. You know, we're talking about DC to New York on there. It's 
30% of all the U.S. air trips are right in the Northeast quarter. 50% of the nationwide delays originate in the New York City area. So we look again to 2040, we're going to increase boardings by 102%. So you can imagine what we've seen in automobiles, we're going to see more and more in air travel. So that by 2040, we're going to be experiencing the same thing. Consistent delays, not enough uh, space, et cetera. <clears throat> Let's look at railroads in our fleet. It's 75% of all the weekly commuter rail riders in the entire United States. Wow. So if I was looking at fixing a quarter <clears throat> for infrastructure, the Northeast Corridor is the area we have to fix and worry about. And how would you describe the Northeast Corridor? Is that like Washington to Boston? Well, Washington, New York, and then Boston. And if you look at the Northeast Corridor, that's also 50% of all the trains in the United States, passenger trains we're talking about. So again, looking forward to 2040, what are the projections? Because of the first two things I talked about, we're going to increase rail travel by more than 100%. But the easy thing would say, why don't we just add more trains and this will all be solved? Part of the problem is we have we share in the United States, passenger rail and freight rail, share all the same infrastructure. And if you look at the Northeast Corridor currently, only about 7% of the current rail could support a 150 mile an hour train. So you would have to redo the entire infrastructure. We've got nine passenger railroads and four freight railroads, all utilizing the same thing. So it's, it's time for really a different vision for the Northeast Corridor, and that's where we come in. And Who is the Northeast Maglev and Baltimore Washington Rapid Rail? We're a 100% U.S. owned company, and we're committed to solving these problems in the Northeast quarter by really bringing the newest technology and the best technology that we could find in the world to bring to bear on our problems. And so what we're doing is we're promoting the deployment of the world's fastest ground transportation system the superconducting maglev train. It's a 311 mile an hour train. We want to bring economic development along with this. I'll sort of jump ahead to give a preview of that. That I think of it as the three legs to the stool. You know, we're going to bring in fastest a train. We're going to have economic development that goes with it. And that means 161,000 job years, 8.8 billion in employee earnings. So a huge shot to the economy. The second is diversity, or the second in this three-legged stool from the jobs is diversity and equity and inclusion. And we have a plan that we've agreed. We've worked with the unions. We've worked with everyone on that, where we provide 40% of the jobs to disadvantaged people and people of color. So that will be a huge shot again in helping our environmental justice and DEI goals. And the third real pressing problem, and we know even from reading the paper, what did Hurricane Sandy do to the tunnel in New York, is climate change. We have to address climate change and we need to do something bold and big on climate change. You know, if not, we're just going to get worse and worse off. The maglev train, just DC to Baltimore, I know from former MTA official, you know what it's like in our quarter, just DC to Baltimore, the maglev will take 16 million cars off the road. And so that's a huge move, 2 million tons of greenhouse gas. A huge move in terms of climate change. So what is our vision? Bring the fastest technology in the world, D.C. to New York. Be able to connect city centers and airports 
So the idea of that is, you know, I talked about air, cars, rail. The idea is a passenger dedicated only connecting city centers and airports so that you would have all the city centers and airports between Washington, D.C. and New York connected in under an hour. So you'd land at Baltimore Airport and in five minutes you could be in downtown Baltimore or in eight minutes you could be in downtown D.C. Or if you were in your airport and, and you were in a plane and your plane camp in Baltimore, and so to say, and staying there for three hours, the airlines could say, we're going to fly you out of Philadelphia and in 20 minutes you'll be in Philadelphia. And we'll put the stations in the airport. So the idea is you get off your plane, you come right downstairs, you get on the train and you're either in D.C. or Baltimore and you do the same thing up and down the corridor. And this is proven technology, right, Wayne? I mean, this isn't like oh. Hyperloop, which is, you know, it's it's more science than fiction now. But this is stuff that's actually running right now in other countries, right? Right. I'll, I'll tell you why we, we went around the world. We looked at all of these train systems, et cetera, and knowing that the, the Northeast quarter, as I said, our most important quarter really deserves the best technology that we have. If you're, if I'm going to fix the problem for 75% of the market, I want to make sure that, that this is the best technology. Central Japan Railway Company is a private, publicly traded Japanese rail company. And it was formed on the privatization of the Japanese National Railways in the 1980s. So what Japan did is they split Japan National Rail, which was a government entity, split it into seven companies, said you're private companies now and go out and build. And what JRC has is it has the central part of the country, which is only a 343 mile across area. So Tokyo, Nagoya is roughly DC to New York. So when you look at this, we're not looking at apples and oranges. You're looking at a system, highly concentrated quarter, distances similar to what we're talking about here and look at the uh, technology. And the reason you talked about JRC is they started high-speed rail operations in 1964. So the first high-speed rail trains rolled out in 1964. If we fast forward to 2019, the latest fiscal year on there, that high-speed rail system carries 167 million passengers a year, just in that small quarter. You, they have 458,000 riders per day. Compare that to our cell. A cell is about 9,000 riders a day. Say that Japan, number again. <laughs> at Japan is 458,000 riders per day just on the high-speed rail line. Okay. And a cell is 9,000 riders. 9,000. So wow. it tells you now in Japan, they have dedicated passenger rail. You can have a high-speed train every three minutes. So you can imagine how that changes your whole life, your planning. If I could go to the train station and in three minutes, I have the next train that'll take me to New York, will take me to Washington, will take you to Baltimore, et cetera. That's a huge difference from our current service. So what is the result of all that? Number one is it's a strongly profitable company. I mean, their earnings in 19 were somewhere on the order of 3.4 billion. So the it bursts the balloon that, that private rail cannot be done profitably anywhere in the world. That's not true. Second is safety. 1964, they started high-speed rail. It's 58 years. There has never been a fatality ever on their line. Wow. That's amazing, Wayne. Wow. Third, speed. Obviously, why would you want to take the train? It's faster than a car or a plane. 
you jump in that. You've got frequency, safety, and let's take another thing, reliability. The average delay in a year for 167 million people is 30 seconds. So if you can imagine moving 167 million people with an average delay of 30 seconds <laughs> and, and 100% safety record, and we're going to do it at, you know, at high speeds, that's something that we really ought to copy and bring to the United States. So that's what we're really doing. And then say, well, they must be profitable because they're raising the ticket prices. Actually not. There's not been a base fare increase in the Japan high-speed rail system in 33 years. Wow. 33 years, no, no fare increases. Only twice it was raised when the government put a, a rail tax on them. They raised the, the price to pick up the tax, but they've never raised fares. So how do they get more profitable? How do they make this work? You do it by increasing ridership. And how do you track ridership? Frequency, safety, reliability, all of those things. That's, so that's, that's beautiful. That's what we're trying to do. I mean, and the other thing is we tend to look at the United States as somehow this is either or. And that's not true. I mean, if we look at, again, if I look at the Japan model, they have conventional lines as we think our conventional lines. As a matter of fact, their conventional line carries a million one passengers a year. Not nearly as profitable as a high-speed rail thing, but they have a million one passengers. So there is conventional. And they have the Shinkansen, the bullet train, which is 450,000. I'm sorry, going back, I said a million 128,000 riders a day. A day, that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's conventional. And then the bullet train, how is that different than maglev? Okay, the bullet train. So let's talk about how you got to maglev. Could you say, we've got this wired. I'm in Japan. I've got a conventional train that's carrying a million people a day. I've got a high-speed rail that's 450,000. I've got trains every three minutes. Why are we messing with maglev? And what is it going to replace? The answer is it's not going to replace anything. It is conventional trains, high-speed rail, and maglev too. So what they did is starting around 1962, they started doing research on what is the next generation of technology. Because when you have steel wheel systems, high-speed rail systems, like they're well familiar with operating for 60 years, when you start getting up in that 240 miles an hour, 250 miles an hour, there's some issues in terms of safety issues on how that would work on a steel wheel system. So there must be a new technology. So they started experimenting with magnetic levitation. And so that whole history is they went into magnetic levitation and then they saw even with magnetic levitation, they need to improve that technology. So they've added superconductivity to it. So what superconductivity is without getting too technical is when you chill certain metals down to a very cold temperature, the electrical resistance goes away. So if you think about that in electric terms, if we had superconductive conducted transmission lines, you could transmit power from Washington to San Francisco without any losses. So if you incorporate superconductivity into the magnet, you can create a very powerful magnet in a very small package. So that's what they did. So they developed the technology along that line, spent 20 years developing that technology. In 1997, they started non-revenue operations where you had the trains running so that that way you could see for a number of years 
Uh, this technology is not experimental. This technology has been approved, et cetera. So in 2011, the Japanese government said, yes, this is proven technology, et cetera. They finished their environmental impacts work. And so they've started the expansion from what was a 26 mile line or almost a DC to Baltimore line all the way to Nagoya. And so they're building that out uh, right now. And they're building that out actually 100% with cash flow from their train operations. So it shows again how you can make that work. So they're now totally approved to sell tickets. You know, on the train, people ride the Yamanashi line. They almost had to have a lottery for people that wanted to ride it because of the, the great interest in can you yeah. ride this comfortably? And you can sit on a train and go 311 miles an hour and not spill your tea. And you wrote it, right? Along with our governor, Larry Hogan, and my former boss, the Secretary of Transportation. I have. I've written it numerous times, as a matter of okay. fact. What did they think? I mean, they told me it was an amazing trip. Yeah, we've had Congress people over there. It's transformational when you write it. Before, when I speak to people, it's all the problems we have in America. I'll call it the chains of low expectations. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we can't get this done. How could we possibly do it in this climate with all of these people and everything else? Nothing will happen. We can't, it's probably can't be done. Then they get on the train and they ride the train and they change instantly from, we can't do this to, we have to have this. <laughs> it's like a conversion experience. <laughs> it is a conversion experience. Yeah. As if you went and turned around and said, people had landline telephones in their homes and someone introduced a cell phone to them. Yeah. Right. That, oh my gosh, we have to have this. Yeah. So. Our U.S. company has a technology use agreement with uh, okay. JRC. We have a railroad franchise that was granted by the Maryland Public Service Commission to provide service between Washington and Baltimore. We started the environmental impact statement 2016. That's still ongoing. We hope in the next year or two, we'll be able to finish that up. And so for our train, one of the things also is how does Japan do safety? One thing is there's nothing at grade. So much of the actions are happening, accidents are happening with things that at grade. So the JRC, the high-speed rail maglev project is either in tunnel or elevated. So there is no way that someone could have an accident, shall we say, underneath the uh, riding across a high-speed rail line, et cetera. And in our case, to Baltimore first leg, they say, how are you going to do it in such a congested area? You know, 70% of it will be in tunnel and 30% above ground as proposed. It's right near I-295, which is the highway there. It's the only place that's above ground on the line is on what would be federal government property. And so what we've been doing is spending all this time, about 10 years, putting this all together so that we can get an alignment from Washington to BWI to Baltimore and result in not taking a single house. Wow. So... We think that we've done all the things that we need to do. There's tremendous energy behind it. We have 25,000 people that have signed up online that want to be advocates for the train. We did polling in our area. 86% of the people want this train to go. There's majorities of, in every county the train goes through, majorities of people say they want to have it. That doesn't say it, it's easy. There's always that you know 5% that are going to be the loudest 5% that are going to be against it and throw up roadblocks. But we hope to press forward on that. So, I mean, it seems like a long time to get something going. That is this obvious what we need. Well, it is a long time. 
And it's obviously a frustration to anyone. And I'm sure <laughs> any colleague in California high speed rail or even Brightline or yeah. uh, Texas or anywhere would say, this is it. And we should be frustrated as Americans because I have on my wall here in my office in Annapolis, the High Speed Rail Act of 1965, <laughs> signed by President Johnson. The year I was born. <laughs> and when he signed the bill, he said that we can get a person around the moon faster than we can get them from Washington to New York. And a lot more people want to go Washington to New York than want to go to the moon. <laughs> and that was 1965. Point. Wow. And here yeah, we are in 2022. And I would say we need, as American people, we need to have the majority speak. We need to move this forward. We need to improve our country. And we need to break these chains of low expectations and get it done. That's good. Let me ask you a few questions about it. So you had mentioned, or we had talked about the fact the governor went and the role of Japan's Central Railroad. What's the role of Maryland and the Maryland Transit Administration and you know the public agencies since you're a private company? Are they funding you? Are you getting funding from Amtrak Joe? Or what, you know, how's all that? No, we talk about the state agencies. The state agencies, MTA, Maryland Department of Transportation, they are the lead state agency for this. So the environmental impact statement we've been talking about as being conducted by Maryland Department of Transportation and MTA. We don't do the review of our own project. We're a private okay. company. They're doing the EIS. You know, we're providing, you know, just engineering input to them, but them and the Federal Railroad Administration are doing the EIS and it's a long and cumbersome process. Yeah. The company is 100% privately funded. So BWRR has private investors in it. We have promotional help and studies and engineering that's coming from Japan. The state of Maryland is not funding at all. It's zero funding. As a matter of fact, we've been paying the match that the state has under the Maglev deployment program. See, America has been very slow to this. I mean, 1965, it's not unusual that we had the High Speed Rail Act of 1965. Why? Because Japan did a high speed rail in 1964. So we looked at that and now we missed it for 30 years. And what happened in 1998? In 1998, the Congress passed the Maglev Deployment Program. And the purpose of the Congress at that point was to deploy a Maglev system in the United States somewhere so that we could make use of this technology, learn this technology, et cetera. And went through a program where 14 states applied and it was a competition, et cetera. And finally, at the end of the day, after many, many years, this Maryland project in the Northeast Quarter, D.C. to Baltimore, emerged as the winner in that national competition. So what we're doing now is there is federal funding that's going to the state of Maryland to help them with the environmental impact statement studies. So that funding goes to Maryland. And then the, the cost of the state for what they would share, we've been paying. So Maryland, in this case, is facilitating it they're studying it they're they're running it but it has not been an impact at all so again we get these false dichotomies people say oh no we should be putting more money into mark trains the situation is nothing's preventing the state from putting any money into mark trains put all the money you want into mark trains i mean all the studies have showed and this is just like amtrak mark etc what happened in japan we believe this is complementary What's going to happen if people are going to have choices? They're going to get on a mark train. They're going to get on an Amtrak regional. They're going to get on a high-speed rail, or they could take the Maglev. 
So the issue is right now, if you go back to 1964 in Japan, you know, more than 90% of the people were still taking cars. You fast forward today, how did you get to 458,000 riders? Now, almost over 90% of the people take the train. No one would take their car between that. So our focus is not on Mark. Our focus is not on Amtrak. We have 121 million trips a year just between D.C. and Baltimore. If you look at this Northeast corridor, if we filled our train completely, it would only be 11% of the trips. So what we really need to do is we need to do something like this or we're going to be you know, choking in air pollution, choking in traffic. So we're focused on cars. How do we get people out of the cars? And the D.C. area, 41% of the air pollution comes from automobiles. Yeah. And it's interesting because there's NASA pictures, the quarter every year where they take it from space and you can see Maryland and you can see the Northeast quarter. And all of a sudden you see 2020 and the air pollution, you know, almost disappears. And why is that? Because we had COVID and everybody was out of their cars. So it's not a, a talking point. I mean, it's reality. So that's what we have to do. And how is what you're doing different than what California high-speed rail is doing? It's a different technology, right? Yes. California high-speed rail is using conventional uh, steel wheel, higher-speed technology. So it, it almost seems like there's regular rail. The world defines high-speed rail as greater than 180 miles an hour. We have nowhere in America that has that. So America has coined its own phrase, higher-speed rail. It's not high-speed rail, it's higher-speed rail. So that means you can increase it from, right now, Amtrak averages 86 miles an hour on the Northeast border. They're working to increase it, and we applaud that. You know, But that's not going to get to 300 miles an hour. <laughs> so the reality is we need to move one of these selections to move millions of people at very high speed in a quarter where the economic activity really supports it and the population supports it. Yeah, that's what um, I recently interviewed the president of Brightline Trains, and he was telling me that they're higher speed down there in Florida between Miami and West Palm right now, and eventually to Orlando, they're hoping. Uh, and it's, it's what, 125, maybe 120 miles per hour. And I remember our Mark trains that you mentioned, which is our commuter rail service from Western Maryland and Baltimore into Washington, D.C., that we used to run at the MTA, and they still run there. I think we were really excited one time one of our trains got to 100. It could, in theory, get to 130 miles per hour. I don't know that it ever did. But that's not even half of what you're talking about, 311, because it's an entirely different technology. And you try and drive. If you've been in Baltimore and everything, try to drive Baltimore to D.C. You know, it's 33 miles. You drive it. It takes you in the morning. If you go, it's maybe an hour and a half uh, to two hours to get into downtown D.C. from Baltimore on a 33-mile trip. I drove it yesterday from Annapolis to Washington. It was 31 miles to our office down there, and, and it was an hour and a half. But on the train between Washington and Baltimore and your train, how long will it take? It would be 15 minutes. It's eight minutes from Washington, D.C. to uh, BWI, two-minute dwell time in BWI, and then five minutes to Baltimore. And we're talking about like in Washington, D.C., our proposed station is city center or down around near where the convention center is. So it's not we're not utilizing Union Station or the other thing. Right. Those are already overcrowded with things they have with current operations. So we'd move it to a new station, passenger rail only. You can dictate the the frequency of the trains depending upon the demand. 
Yeah. So if you want to be like Japan and have a train every three minutes, you could have a train you know, every three minutes. If you want to have a train every 15 minutes, right. you know, we'll start something like that every 15 minutes. Where would it be in Baltimore City? You got one at BWI and then where would it be in Baltimore? Right now we're planning on in the Westport Cherry Hill area, which is just south of about one mile where the stadiums are. And the reason it's there is it would be on top of the Cherry Hill light rail station so that riders coming in on the maglev or from anywhere in Baltimore, if they wanted to, could take light rail to the maglev station. They could drive to the maglev station. They could Uber to the Maglev station, you know, and we could get a bus, the bus circulator in Baltimore could go to the Maglev station and I-95 and 295 all converge right there too. So people coming in on the freeways could come right in the station and they wouldn't have to do that. So it's that last mile connectivity is however you want to do it. Last question would be timeline, Wayne. Tell us about what you're projecting and when, when we might see, you know, construction and completion and all those kind of things if you have those timelines. Yeah, we're looking at finishing this EIS and permitting within the next two years. And we're hoping we can stick to that schedule. We're pushing hard. We need a lot of people, even in the listening audience, to, to push for this, you know, that let's move this, let's let's not have it drag along. And then if that's the case, we go into financing and design. It'll be about a year to year and a half of doing that. And we anticipate it's probably about seven years of construction. And the reason it's so long is the tunneling that we're proposing. Oh, yeah. So that's yeah. very slow construction. But the good news, and I tell our team, we only do this once every 100 years. Yeah, yeah, only do right. it once every 100 years. Let's do it right. Let's not skimp on this and skimp on that. So people say, well, it's going to be expensive tunneling. That's true. But compared to what? Going through people's neighborhoods or or we have to also have it set that when you're ultimately up to New York that you've built the infrastructure from the beginning that you could expand this up to New York, up to Philadelphia, et cetera, just expand it up the corridor. And we don't have to change the infrastructure at all to do that expansion. Wayne Rogers, uh, thank you so much for being our guest today and explaining uh, all of this information packed into a tight half hour. It was great. We wish you the best. I hope to visit you sometime as you continue the project going forward. And uh, let us know when you finish the EIS, we'll have you come back and let us know what's going on then. That sounds great. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Paul. Thank you for listening to Transit Unplugged in-depth with our special guest, Wayne Rogers, chairman and CEO of Northeast Maglev. I don't know about you, but a 300-mile-an-hour train going from New York to Washington, D.C. sounds pretty awesome to me. And next week on Transit Unplugged News and Views, we have a special guest. Jen Shepard, GM of Uber Transit, will be talking with Paul about microtransit and how agencies can support more paratransit riders more cost-effectively by using TNCs. If you ever have a question, comment, or would like to be a guest on Transit Unplugged, feel free to email us anytime at info at transitunplugged.com. So until next week, ride safe and ride happy.